chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, and from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 29 to 30. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his men with, with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And from the book of John, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I have, of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and... Let us pray together as we look at God's word. Our Father in heaven, our God who provides, we come to you this morning asking you to provide for us a measure of your grace and your comfort. Many of us are ecstatic and excited to celebrate the holiday season, Christmas, the coming of your son. Others of us are here struggling to make it through each day because it's just been a really, really hard season. And regardless of where we are, we ask that we would experience your provision, your care, your love this morning through this passage and through your word. Meet us, we ask in your son's name. Amen. You know, this year, our Avon series, we've been saying, has been titled, His Name Shall Be. His Name Shall Be. And we've been focusing on the names of God that you find in the Bible Names of God in particular we see in the Old Testament that help us understand not only his character and who he is, but also how they reveal the work of Jesus 
in his incarnation, his coming, his death and resurrection. And this morning, we look at this name, the God who provides, the God who provides. And this passage is telling us that the way you experience the provision of God is through very difficult situations and tests. And let's just call it out for what it is. This is a troubling story which raises a lot of questions for all of us. The, but the questions it raises aren't just about the passage or the text. These are questions every reader has from non-Christian to the most devout and devoted follower of Jesus. And we're all asking, we're asking, why the test? I mean, does God even test us today? Is he testing me? And maybe we need to just think about that before we jump into the rest of this. But if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is the last sermon Moses preaches to the people of Israel, he says to them, do you want to know why God led you through the wilderness all these years? And in chapter 8, verse 2 of Deuteronomy, Moses says, to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. That it's through circumstances he wants us to be humbled. And the Lord tests us in order to know what's in our hearts. And it it forces us to ask, I mean, what do we really believe? What are we really holding on to when we are tested? And yes, the Lord God does test us, and it takes the form of oftentimes adversity, pressure, stress, difficulty, a wilderness experience of some sort, and to varying degrees to test us and prove us. And I'm not saying that every single hardship or adversity is a test from God. The Bible says there are many reasons we find ourselves in difficult situations and pressure cooker type scenarios. But one of the reasons, it's not the only reasons, we have to consider is that it is actually a test. You know, in the New Testament, the book of James describes it as the testing of our faith. This is in chapter 1. In order that you may be mature and complete. That is, you are tested so that you become mature, complete. And the verse concludes, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. And that's a fascinating And strange phrase, if you think about it, because James is saying you were tested so that you would eventually lack nothing. And the implication that James is making and Abraham is experiencing is this. There are things you didn't know you were missing until you were tested. You need something, but you didn't know you needed it until you were made to lose what you thought you needed more if that makes some sense to you. So God is testing Abraham here, and he's asking the question, what is he supposed to do? Because it feels like an irrational and unreasonable demand, and I think a lot of us are sitting here maybe feeling like, is God testing us? And is he going to provide for me, for us, as he has for Abraham here? So this morning, I want us to look at three things, briefly, three things. We're going to look at the test of faith, okay? the evidence of faith, and lastly, God's provision of faith. So the testing of faith, the test of faith, the evidence of faith, and God's provision of faith. So let's look at the test of faith. 
Notice how the passage begins in Genesis 22. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. These things, what are these things? And maybe just do a quick recap on the life of Abraham for those of us who need it, which is all of us. You know, remember this. There was this call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He was living in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is modern-day Iraq. He didn't know God, okay? He didn't know God at all or the God of the scriptures. But God comes to him and tells him, look, I am calling you out of this place to go to a land I will show you so you can become a blessing to all nations. Everyone is going to be blessed through you. He follows God. He leaves all that he knows. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God gives a little bit more clarity on how this is going to happen. He says, the blessing of all nations will come through one of your descendants, an heir. Okay? A few years later, fast forward, Genesis 17, this promise becomes even more clear. One of your descendants will be the heir, and he will come through your wife, Sarah, and you will call him Isaac. God gives this child a name. I mean, the name, Isaac, actually means laughter. It's like they're going to be amazed. They're going to laugh because they thought it was impossible to actually have a child in their old age. And in Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to a son, Isaac. Finally, the heir comes. I mean, between chapter 12 and Genesis 21, 25 years have passed. The one through whom the Redeemer will come is now born, and everything seems to be working out. Everything feels copacetic. He is living in the land of promise. He's ready to settle into retirement, hit the autopilot button on life, hand over the family business to Isaac, and then God comes and tests him. And by the way, that's an editorial comment because Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. We, the readers, know God is testing him because we know the end of the story. But all Abraham knows is God has come and he is testing him. Okay? And listen to how this is described. Take your son, only son Isaac, whom you love. And it's as if God is saying, in case it is unclear to you or you think you misheard, yes, him, not Ishmael, don't have time to get an Ishmael today. You can ask me about him later. But this is, by the way, this is the same language used of Jesus in John 3. God says he gave his only son, his begotten son. And God wanted to make very clear to Abraham, I want you to take your only son, the child of promise, Isaac, and I want you to take him to a place I will tell you and sacrifice him. Now, what's Abraham to do? You know, God is asking him to relinquish the two most important things probably in his life. First, he's asking, being asked to put to death his own son, the son of him and his wife, Sarah. I mean, who wants to even contemplate something like this? And then the second thing, he has to sacrifice the child of the promise. This is the child through whom God promised all blessings would come to the nations. Again, what's he going to do? Is he going to trust God? Will he obey God? Because obeying God 
feels like he's going to lose all of the promises of God. You know what some of the best thinkers through the centuries have said about this text? I'll just give you a couple examples. Martin Luther, he described this as a conflict between God's promise and God's command. John Calvin takes this a little further, and he calls it a contradiction. It feels like a contradiction between God's promise and God's command. And in the last century, C.S. Lewis described it as an apparent absurdity. I like that. He says, this is absurd. Obedience to this cruel request would mean the end of all of Abraham's hopes and dreams. The nullification of the promise he had heard so often from the mouth of God. And if you are going to enter into the Christian story and live this out, these are human questions that we are going to end up asking often. And you have to feel the conflict, and we indeed all will. You know, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a whole book on Genesis 22. It's called Fear and Trembling. And Kierkegaard, he argued that Genesis 22 is the signature story of faith in the Bible. It's the signature story of faith in the Bible. Now, Abraham's tension is not as uncommon as you think. We often experience very similar things, don't we? And if it sounds strange for God to come to Abraham and tell him to sacrifice all of his hopes and dreams, which is represented in his son Isaac, does it not sound strange to us when Jesus comes to us and says, whoever wants to save his life must lose it? We saw this as we've been studying Luke, Luke 9, 24. That's what Jesus says. Sacrifice yourself. The promise is you will be whole when you do that. The promise is life. The promise is resurrection. And we keep asking ourselves, you know, are you saying in order to live, I'm supposed to die? That feels so contradictory. And Jesus says, yes. He says, if you want to be great, you must become small. You want to become significant? You want to become an influencer? Jesus says, become insignificant, overlooked, ignored. You want to become the greatest in the kingdom? Become the servant of all. To take up your cross and bear it. It sounds completely backwards, doesn't it? And you and I are faced with a similar challenge of Abraham. We go into these situations, oftentimes trusting Jesus with all areas of our life, whether it be our romantic life, our professional life, school, our relationships, our friendships, career decisions. And it feels like sometimes Jesus says, follow me. You're going to have to lose your life in order to save it. And you know what? It would be hollow if Jesus himself didn't do that, right? I, I think that's a fair thing to say. But remember this. If anyone was tested, it was Jesus. When he began his ministry, he was baptized. And then we're told the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by Satan. And he fasted that whole time, so Jesus was hungry, hungry. 
And in the middle of Jesus' weakest moments, Satan comes and tempts him with, of all things, this common sense. Think about it this way. He said, if you're the son of God, just turn these stones into bread. Use your power to comfort yourself. Take away your hunger. You know, no one's going to get hurt. It's just common sense. And Jesus resists this temptation. And then Satan takes him up to the top of the temple mound and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, Jesus, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down to me. But God had promised to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world too. And he said, you know, common sense is this. Jesus, you can get all the kingdoms of the world simply by bowing the knee to Satan. Or the other option is you can get all the kingdoms of the world by enduring the cross, by being mocked, scorned, misunderstood, abandoned, deserted by all of your friends and bearing the wrath of God for humanity. This is the other way of gaining the kingdom of the world. Which will it be? Suffering or take the easy path of bowing to Satan? And common sense keeps telling you, take the knee. Make it easy. But he doesn't. You know why? Because God told him to go to the cross. The cross is the way you will bring redemption to mankind. Although it seems foolish, save people by dying? You know, at the end of Jesus' life, he faces the test. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see Jesus was no stranger to struggle with whether he should be obedient, because this was the thing that he struggled with all throughout his ministry, because he does exactly the opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Because when Adam and Eve were in the garden and tempted, what did they do? All our children here, you guys all know this answer. They ate of the fruit. But when Jesus was in the garden and he was tempted to give up, and instead he looked at God and said, if there's any way we can do this besides going through the cross, could we please make that happen? And you know what happened when he prayed this? There was silence, nothing. Not even a phone ringing, okay? And he prays again, Father, If you are willing, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And what, what did he hear? He heard silence. You know, in the face of what would seem to be like the most irrational thing in the world, to go to the cross, one person should somehow go to the cross to bear the sins of the world. Jesus goes forward and he does it. He trusts and obeys. And this is the test before Abraham now. Are you going to obey or not, Abraham? Are you going to trust that God is going to make things right? That he's going to see this through? And Abraham goes. And his going is the evidence of faith. This is the second point, because the evidence of faith, you see it in verses 3 to 10. And I want to point out just three things. There's at least three things, but I bet you guys can come up with some more on your own as you study and reflect on the passage. But the first thing is, Faith alone is not good enough. And I think this is what's very clear here because we are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. You've heard us say this before. But we are justified by faith alone, but
but not by faith that is alone. In other words, the evidence that you believe the gospel is evidenced by the fact that you will trust God and be obedient to the gospel, even when common sense tells you this is a bad idea. Because how do we know Abraham believed God's promise? Verse 3 tells us he went. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. If you followed Abraham's life, no one has had more struggles than he has. But you would think this would be his biggest struggle. But perhaps all of his years walking with God, failing at it, he's gotten to the point in his life where he begins to believe and trust that God will see things through. So this is what he does. The first evidence of his faith is that he simply goes. I mean, it's a three-day journey, and there is not one word of conversation recorded with him and his son. They just go. I mean, can you imagine how awkward those three days were? Not only does he go... But the second thing he does is he actually preaches the gospel to his servants. Notice in verses 4 and 5, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, the place that God told him to go. Then Abraham said to his young men, these are his servants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He says, we're going to go worship and we're going to come back to you. He's telling these servants, we're going to return. Now, some commentators actually speculate Abraham may have been kind of telling a white lie to his servants because he didn't want them to know what a horrible thing he was going to do in case they try to stop him. You know, Other people speculate, well, maybe he's lying because he doesn't want Isaac to know all this stuff. He didn't want to scare his son and didn't want him to know what God had commanded. So he just says, we're going to go over there and worship and we're going to come back because you've got to keep up the whole charade here. But that's not what the Bible actually says. The New Testament doesn't say that Abraham told a fib or covered it up so everyone can feel a little better about the whole situation. But the New Testament describes this as that Abraham was doing this in faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So how could he tell his servants that we're going to come back? Abraham believed this thing, that God could raise the dead. And this is what he believed. Because he believed if he sacrificed his son in obedience to God, 
The only hope he had was that God was going to make the situation right. He believed that God could somehow raise his son from the dead. He believed in the resurrection. And of course, this has implications for us today because we are called to believe that as Christ has been raised from the grave, that a Christian is someone who believes they are so connected to Jesus that in him, we have that promise as well. And that we live in the hope of that promise. That Jesus has not only come, but that he has gone to the cross, he has died, and we have the hope of resurrection that is in us. And we preach the gospel to ourselves. That's part of what it means to celebrate Christmas. So not only faith alone is not good enough, that's the first way we see the evidence of faith. The second thing is we see Abraham preaching the gospel to his servants. And the third thing I want to briefly mention is the evidence of his faith is not actually Abraham's, but let's look at Isaac's. Why? Because listen to this conversation here in verse 7. Isaac's asking, my father, behold, look, the fire and the wood, they're here with us. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I want you to notice something. Isaac picked up on the fact that something is off with this whole trip. He's saying, where's the lamb? He's probably gone with his dad before to offer sacrifices. Isaac is beginning to get the idea there is no lamb and something is up. So what does he do? You know what he does? He trusts his father. Verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Apparently, that is all Isaac needed to hear. Even though it seems irrational, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because in verse 9, we are told they're all moving ahead. They're arranging the wood. Abraham ties up his son and takes the knife to slay his son. All of this is happening. I mean, Isaac must have believed his father's words with all of his heart because there's no way that Abraham in his old age, he's probably like 100, over 110 years old at this point, could have wrestled his son and tie him up. I mean, Isaac wasn't like a four-year-old kid or something. Most people think he was in his teens or his 20s by now. Some rabbinic tradition says he was in his 30s. Now, the only way Abraham could have tied up his son is if Isaac willingly submitted and gave himself up. So you have a father sacrificing his son, and you have a son who is willingly giving himself up. I mean, and it's so dramatic. The knife is drawn, and you're thinking, what is going to happen in this existential moment of crisis? And this is where we see God's provision of faith. God's provision of faith. They understand there's a test of faith. They understand the obedience is the outworking of faith. But only when they come to the end of themselves and give up all of their self-salvation strategies can they understand the provision of faith. That Abraham and Isaac both literally had nothing. There's no hope of reward. All they have is God's promise so what are they going to do? 
They follow through, continuing to believe, and then we see that God provides a substitute. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Notice, it's not in his peripheral vision anywhere. It's behind him. And Abraham went and took this ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And verse 14, he called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It shall be provided. God is saying, I am utterly convinced that you get it. You understand to the farthest degree my promise that my promise will never fail, even if I ask you to do the most unreasonable, irrational thing in the world. If you move forward in trust, I will provide. I will see to it. And what does God provide? This ram. And he sacrifices it. You know, I know some of you who've been around church for a long time know the words, God will provide. Maybe you heard the phrase, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide. It also means literally the Lord sees or the Lord will see to it. He's going to finish the job. He's going to handle it. And you know what? That's what Abraham saw. That's what he saw. He experienced. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus said this, that Abraham looked for my day and he saw it. Literally, he saw it and was glad. And he's not talking about Abraham like somehow looking down now at that point in Jesus' life and he sees it. He's talking about that day when Abraham saw the ram. He saw it. He looked for my day and he was glad. He saw that God was going to preserve one of his descendants, that God somehow would allow him to receive Isaac from the dead. Figuratively, that's exactly what happened, that one of his descendants would be a substitute. And you see this desire born out in the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, that a lamb, a substitute, was for the people of God. In Exodus, you see a lamb provided so that the firstborn do not die the Passover lamb. You know, David is looking for his descendant who will sit on the throne. He's looking for the lamb. They're asking the question. Isaiah asks the question. Zechariah, Malachi, they're all looking for the Messiah to come. They're all saying, where is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world? And in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and the people ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah you've been waiting for? He says, I'm not the one, but he's coming after me. And he is the one 
whom I am not worthy to untie his shoes. And in the very next line, he looks up and he sees Jesus and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying God has provided. You know, I think a lot of us are in here and I bet you're wrestling with that question, God, why are you testing me and will you provide? Will you see this through? You know, you're asking these questions because you're struggling in your marriage and you're wondering, gosh, you know, I don't know if we're going to make it. God, I just want to, like, take the easy path out here. And God is saying to you, look, he will provide. Some of you are wondering how my job is just a terrible place. Is something out there for me? And you are filled with anxiety. And God is saying, no, trust me, be faithful. I'm going to provide. Some of you are wondering, my health, I don't know if I can manage and deal with all my pain. And God is saying, I see you. There's hope in the resurrection. There's hope knowing that God is comforting you in the midst of your sorrows. Some of you are brokenhearted over so many different things. And you're wondering, God, I don't know if you're going to be enough for me. Because nothing seems to calm my heart. Because all I can do is weep. And God is saying, I see you. I will see this through. This is why at the end of the Bible, you see it again in Revelation 5, everyone gathered together before the throne of the Lamb. And in verse 12, this is what they say. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know why they say that? Because God was faithful. God provided. He saw it through till the end. And he's saying, you can trust this. And Advent and Christmas is all about this as people have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years in silence. And Matthew 1, 1, the first verse of the New Testament, talks about Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, meaning God will provide. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, this morning... We come with heavy hearts, wondering if you actually will provide for us in the way that you provided for Abraham and for those in the scriptures. Some of us feel like we see you providing for others and coming through, and we wonder, do you care about us, or you feel too slow in your coming? And we ask that during this Advent season, you would fill our hearts with such hope as we experience the wonder of Advent and Christmas, of Jesus coming to us, that we are again refreshed to know that, yes, Lord, you will provide and we can trust in you. And I pray that that would be the experience of every single person in this room this morning, that we would have a fresh experience of the gospel. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.